Hi, how you doing? Welcome to my podcast, A Design for Life. How to survive and thrive at life. My name's Phil Mears, entrepreneur, mindset coach, and I want to share with you my life lessons and how I learned to survive some unbelievable life traumas. But also, from that, I designed a successful life for myself. I'll also share with you my harrowing backstory and how I can help you with not just the big life-affirming challenges and changes you want to make to your life, but also the little everyday challenges when you're feeling a little bit disorientated and you maybe need a little bit of a boost to get you going again. This podcast is where you'll discover my secrets of how to apply a positive mindset to uplift your life when you're feeling a bit stuck, maybe don't know which way to turn. And you will be able to thrive in ways you've never before imagined and perhaps start living the best life you can. I'm excited to have you with me here, so thanks for tuning in. Hi guys, how you doing? Good to have you back here for this week's episode of my podcast. And this week, I'm going to be talking about a subject that is so close to my heart, I consider it the longest-serving passion of my life. For as long as I can remember, Music has served me in so many ways. It has been my salvation, my escape, my comfort, motivator, thought stimulus, mood enhancer and friend. And music has never threatened me, criticised me or victimised me. Throughout my life, when I have suffered trauma and needed a helping hand, music has been there. When I've faced challenges that I could not see a way of overcoming, music has been the catalyst to finding that solution. In the happiest times of my life, going back over many, many years, I can identify the role music has played in it, allowing me to tap into the mindset I felt at those times, giving me the mind lift I need. Now, my purpose in this episode is to share with you just how music has served me by diving deep into the experiences of my backstory, including the day my passion for music literally saved my life. But also, shining a light on all of that, I hope, you may be able to become more conscious of how music has served you during the challenges you have faced and undoubtedly will face if you are serious about moving from survival into thriving. So where does it all start for me? Well, think of this. Occasionally, we all attempt to remember what our earliest memory is. How old we were, what we were doing, where we were, who we were with. So for me, I go back to being about three years old and I'm sitting on the lounge rug playing with my toys, and a record comes on the radio that just resonates with me, and it's Two Little Boys by Rolf Harris. And I remember the story behind it. My brother had not long been born, and I was no longer an only child, but one of two little boys. The story of Joe and Jack looking out for each other when they had mishaps began to sow seeds in my mind of what it would mean to be a brother, and I look forward to looking after my little brother. There would be times ahead where my parents would separate us and we would find ourselves living in different places with different family members. And thinking about those times now and recalling what that song meant to me really brings a lump to my throat. Indeed, if I allowed myself to just take a moment and be present with those memories, I think I'd have to stop what I'm doing. Anyway, so throughout my childhood, due to the disruption and chaos caused by our parents, my brother Rob and I would frequently find that we had nobody else but ourselves to lean on. And in those times, music would be the shared experience that would bind us. And it still does to this day. 
going back to still being very young, there are two songs that will invoke fond memories for me of escaping, at least in my mind, the difficulties of my early childhood. When I play them now, I feel a mixture of melancholy and nostalgia. So aside from Rolf Harris, these two songs that really sort of resonate with my childhood are Ernie the Fastest Milkman in the West by Benny Hill and Grandad by Clive Dunn. So with Ernie, I've attached a memory of looking out of my bedroom window across the rooftops at night and seeing the green neon glow of the sign on the pub some streets away. With Grandad, the memory places me walking back from the corner shop after an errand my mother would have sent me on. I'd probably be aged around seven. I'd be given a shopping bag, a list, which would include buying cigarettes for my mother, which you could do in those days. And I'm talking about the early 70s. She'd give me a purse with coins in it and I'd be expected to ensure I came home with the right change. And as the shopkeeper was adding the items on the list to my bag and ringing them up on the till, I'd be mentally adding up the total and calculating the change I expected. The shopkeeper would count the change into my hand and because I would not want to stand in the shop with other customers waiting to be served stood behind me and fearful of leaving the shop without the correct change, I would have calculated mentally what the correct amount of change would be before I'd even given it. The obvious benefit is what seems to be a long lost skill for a generation below us now of mental arithmetic. But this was quite important when I was a child. So the music invokes all these memories of childhood. And when I became old enough to make decisions about who my favourite musical artist would be, the very first one for me was Gary Glitter. Come on, this was the early 70s. I was a kid and no, none of us knew then about Rolf Harris and Gary Glitter, what we do now. So I'm going to give myself a bit of a pass on that score. I still feel to this day that Rock and Roll Part 2 by Gary Glitter is a fantastic track and has the most amazing beat and a true glam rock feel about it. And just because I listen to his music on Spotify has nothing to do with how or what he became. It is the music that speaks to me still, not the actions of the artist. And I think we can sometimes be in danger of cancelling our own identity because we're made to feel that we should follow the populist crowd of woke opinion. I, as an intelligent adult, am quite capable of separating the enjoyment of the music from the behaviour of the artist, be it Gary Glitter or Rolf Harris or Michael Jackson for that matter. Music speaks to me in a language I have always had the desire to be fluent in. And if I was pushed to define the genres I am most fluent in, I would have to say rock and pop. That doesn't mean I'm closed off to other genres, but my enjoyment of, say, jazz, country or classical is limited to certain tunes rather than particular artists. From those genres, I would select in jazz, Take Five by Dave Brubeck as a particular favourite. In country, The Fighter by Keith Urban, fantastic tune. And in classical, it would be The Hungarian Rhapsody Part 2 by Franz Liszt. But on the whole, pop and rock would be my mainstay. Now, when I think about the musical influences I gained from my parents, I have to admit that my mother was the greater music fan. And she would always put the radio on wherever we were, whether it's at home or in the car. And as much as I hope my children can say there was always music on in the house, it literally was that case because I'd grown up with that influence. As soon as you get up and you go in the kitchen, you put the radio on. I recently transferred some old home video recordings I'd made of my children when they were young and transferred them to a digital USB. So we looked through them one Christmas 
and there is always music on in the background. So I'm going to give myself credit because I really considered my children's musical education carefully. Not for me were there going to be endless car journeys, repeatedly listening to things like Wheels on the Bloody Bus. I wanted them to grow up with The Who, Queen, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, Elvis and various 80s bands. In fact, I remember when my uh, eldest son was a little older, he actually asked me if I liked music by anyone that wasn't dead. So, returning to my parents' musical influences, with my mum, I don't remember her actually playing records, but she did have a few albums. And the ones I recall are The Beatles, 1962-66, to that's the red one, which I'd play repeatedly, and where my lifelong love of The Beatles came from. My mother was only a fan of the earlier Beatles tracks, however, and never bought the Blue Beatles 67 to 70, which was a revelation to me when I found out many years later that it even existed. Another album I remember that would have a tremendous impact on me. Some years later, Elvis' 40 Greatest Hits. And this was released shortly after Elvis's death on August the 16th, 1977. I remember coming in for my tea, aged 11, soon to be 12, and my mother announcing that Elvis had died and me just being rooted to the spot in grief. I couldn't quite take it in. I'd grown up watching Elvis films and I just wanted to be him so much. He was the most beautiful man I'd ever seen. And I thought he was cool and adored by every single person on the planet. His death for me was so shocking because it felt like someone I knew had died, like a family member or something. Whenever I used to hear people say, oh, I don't like Elvis or the Beatles for that matter, I used to think, what the fuck are you talking about? You are no more interesting because you claim to be different and in some way infer that you are either more intelligent or more perceptive than the rest of the world because you don't like Elvis or the Beatles. I could just not comprehend how anybody could not be enamoured by these two important artists as I was. And seemingly, everybody else was. My father's musical influence was a little more limited. I don't actually remember him actively playing music in the home. However, he would clearly at some point record albums to cassette tape to be played in the car. His musical genre of choice would be Tamla Motown. So on car journeys, we would listen to Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Diana Ross, etc. So in terms of difficult as my childhood was, thanks to the chaos caused by my parents, in terms of musical influence, some of my fondest memories come from their musical influence. So, with my father transferring his albums onto cassette tape, my father, whilst ever my father was a part of our lives, we had a car. Music in the car was quite important. So, sat in the back of the car, going on journeys around Derbyshire or around the UK, the music was quite important. And so, the influences of my parents at least left me with what I consider to be a really important legacy. Coinciding with the death of Elvis was my transition to being a teenager. And in my opinion, what came along was the single most influential musical movement in my lifetime. And it had a profound effect on me that I still feel to this day. Punk music became a conscious thing in 1976 in the UK. So by 1977, by the time Elvis had died, it was at its peak with the Sex Pistols having been kept deliberately off number one during the Queen's Jubilee week in June 1977 with God Save the Queen because it it was considered distasteful to have a punk track at number one and supplementing it with Rod Stewart instead. 
And I just loved the idea that punk was a force that people were scared of. I feel very lucky to have become a teenager just as punk was becoming this force. Not just in music, but in popular culture. Because for me, as a shy, introverted and somewhat anxious teenager, punk embodied everything I wanted to be. I tried very hard to be a well-behaved kid at home, so as not to antagonise my mother. And also, same at school for the same reason with the teachers and the other kids who bullied me. So when Johnny Rotten came along with his couldn't care less attitude, I idolised him because that was what I wanted to be, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So I listened to the music instead and fantasised about embodying that attitude when I grew up. I didn't get the punk attitude until I was well into my 30s. The first record I bought though was a punk record, and it was Sarplan Pour Moi by Plastic Bertrand. And even though I couldn't understand the lyrics and I had to ask my French teacher what the title meant, the feel of this track just captured me. The energy from the opening few bars as it builds to the aggression of the lyrics as they burst into life would energise my soul and I would play it over and over again. I used to attend a youth club around this time. My friends and I were big into two things really at the youth club, table tennis and girls. We had to have our own table tennis bats which we would take along to the youth club and we believed that the girls would be impressed by our professionalism and they appeared to show their uh, appreciation of this by completely and utterly ignoring us. However, when we were allowed to play music at the youth club, I would pogo around like a possessed animal to any punk tracks that were played. For the first time in my life, I didn't feel self-conscious in the company of others. Sure, I would look a dick and have the piss taken out of me, but kids did that to me anyway, so I didn't care. I just wanted to let out what the music was making me feel inside. In 1979, I'd had some money for my 14th birthday and I had for the first time in my life a the money to buy my first album but also the difficult choice of what to invest in. Albums were very much an investment back in those days so I agonised over which I was going to buy. The contenders were Out of the Blue by ELO, Never Mind the Bollocks by The Sex Pistols and Parallel Lines by Blondie. The music was that good in the late 70s, kids. Now, I'm the kind of person that does think deeply about everything I consider to be important. So I deliberated night and day over which album I should buy, and I just couldn't make a choice. So I'd go into Nottingham and just buy the one that I wanted most when I got there. So in the morning of that day, I sat down to watch Saturday Swap Shop before going into town, and guesting on the show was Bev Bevan from ELO. So I was very interested in what he was talking about. And what he was talking about was ELO's new album called Discovery, which I wasn't even aware of. And just like that, I decided that that was the album I was going to buy. So I did. My first album was Discovery by ELO. Now, as many of you listening who are of a certain age will know, when you bought a vinyl album back in the day, it was an investment. And as such, you devour it completely, analysing every note, every lyric, every detail on the sleeve. With Discovery, although it was a single album, it had a gatefold sleeve with this epic photo of a Bedouin traveller in the centre. And the inner sleeve had all the lyrics, so I absorbed all of this, spending hour after hour listening and reading and fantasising about a world beyond the shithole I lived in. And during that difficult time, transitioning into a teenager, and all the crap that goes with that, and feeling impotent in my own life because I was allowing myself to be a victim in it. Music was my escape. 
and my loyal, non-judgmental friend. When I was 14, the 1980s began, and my connection with music deepened. I bought my first punk album, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle by The Sex Pistols. My friends had records by The Clash, The Members, UK Subs and Stiff Little Fingers. And the significance of me listening to these records is because for the first time since the 1960s, you had to pick a musical tribe, and mine was punk. However, I was torn because in 1980, you had... Grebos, who were into heavy rock. There was no such thing as heavy metal then. ACDC and Iron Maiden. You had the mods, the Rude Boys, which is Scar, Two-Tone, Skinheads, all of which had their musical genres. And you had to declare your allegiance to one and dress accordingly, much like supporting a football team. When you chose your tribe, you were accepted by the other members of the tribe, but despised by members of other tribes. My quandary came in the fact that, although I was a punk, I actually liked music from all these genres. And as such, I had to keep it to myself. I used to believe that there was something wrong with me because of the perceived ease with which my peers seemed to be able to throw themselves all in with these particular adopted tribes. I felt different and confused because, like, I didn't belong in any one true camp. I mean, the way I'm talking about this, you'd think it was something as important as discovering my sexuality. But at that time, picking your musical tribe was bloody important, not just to me, but to everyone of my age. I resolved to just listen to whatever I liked, but in private and keeping it to myself. And I was definitely not going to tell my punk mates that I thought What's Another Year by Johnny Logan, 1980s Eurovision winner, was actually quite a good song. And so it was throughout the 80s with my musical journey. It was, for me, not only a time of real growth in myself, where I transitioned from a frightened boy through a cocky teenager into a man, and eventually a paraplegic. And during all this, I can map all the significant elements of my growth with the musical soundtrack of the time. In 1980, I was a high school kid. In 1989, I'd just sold the first house I'd bought and moved to a new house in Stratford, Manchester, and immersed myself in the baggy Manchester culture of the time. This idea of soundtracking my life's adventure only ended in 2000. That year felt like a watershed in music for me. No longer did the musical charts mean anything. Music was disposable, and for me, it all just felt a little irrelevant, with only the occasional song punctuating this feeling. What hadn't waned, however, was my craving for live music. My first gig was in 1987 when I went to Birmingham to see Tapau. I've always wished it had been something cooler than Tapau for my first gig. But nevertheless, I fell in love with live music. And after that, and with my move to Manchester, I would go to gigs every week for many years, seeing everyone from the Happy Mondays at the Hacienda to Oasis at Main Road. I went with my brother to the Freddie Mercury tribute concert at Wembley. And one of the best gigs I've ever been to was the Norman Cook Roadshow at the International One in Manchester. This was Norman Cook in between the House Martins and Beats International. I still have the same passion for live music now and the shared experience of being surrounded by like-minded strangers who feel like best friends. Nowhere do I feel this more acutely than down at the front of my annual trip to see Stiff Little Fingers. It can be quite dangerous being in a wheelchair surrounded by 50-somethings going nuts and pogoing around you. But I love it and I look forward to that gig each year. Nowadays, we can access any music we want any time we want. We just have to tell our smart speaker what we want to hear and she'll play it for us. So how we interact with music, I feel has lost something. 
and maybe I'm part of the last generation to totally invest themselves in the musical soundtrack of their lives. Maybe those are just the words of an old man lamenting his past. I don't know. But in terms of surviving and thriving, music has been there for me. And still, when I need to use music for whatever reason, it's there. The ironic thing is that whilst I'm writing my podcast episodes, I cannot play music in the background. I find it distracting. I have to be present with my thought stream. And if a song comes on the radio I feel particularly connected with, I can't concentrate on my thoughts because the music pulls me in. The benefit in that is that knowing how to use that to boost my mindset is a powerful tool. Because when I need a lift, I have tracks and playlists I can go to when I'm up or when I'm down. Whether I'm melancholy, giddy, working, excited, depressed or none of the above, I have music as an accompaniment that helps me manage my mindset in whichever direction I require. When I've needed to survive, it's been there. And at the outset of this episode, I mentioned that my passion for music had literally saved my life. And it did. So I'll relate this story. But brace yourself because... This tale can be a little bit of a challenge to listen to. So the year is 1987 and I had recently been discharged from hospital following an operation on the sphincter of my bladder because it wasn't emptying properly and I was retaining urine which could have been fatal. So the operation needed to go ahead. The idea is they snip the sphincter and the bladder fills up and when the pressure gets to a certain point it empties itself uh, automatically. On this day I had steer lift engineers in my house fitting a lift down to the basement garage where I'd parked my car and I began to feel a bit dizzy so I went to the toilet and when I shut the door I looked into my pants. I was horrified by what I saw because this was full of blood. So I sat on the toilet and the blood spattered all over the small bathroom. Worse still, it was pouring out of the end of my penis quite powerfully. I told you it was a challenge. Stick with it. I gripped myself hard to stop the blood flow, confused about what was happening. I let go again. A huge amount of blood spattered all over the walls, the bath, the floor, everywhere. And I began to get concerned about the rate at which I was losing blood. So I shouted to the lift engineers on the other side of the door, please don't be alarmed but would you call me an ambulance? And of course the reply came back, are you okay? And I just replied, don't come in, just please call an ambulance and tell them I'm a paraplegic and it's quite urgent. And I sat there gripping myself very tightly knowing that I couldn't hold on to it like that forever and I'd have to release the pressure at some point. So I hoped that the ambulance would turn up pretty soon. So when I did, again, a huge amount of blood spattered again, and it was then that I looked around me. The bathroom looked like an abattoir or a serial killer's basement. There was hardly a surface that wasn't coated in my blood. So I was beginning to feel cold now, and again, hoping the ambulance wouldn't be too long. And when it did come, the paramedic opened the door, and I could see him physically recoil at the sight that greeted him. Well, you would, wouldn't you? He knelt down in front of me, and while I explained everything I knew... He told me to let go and I warned him that if I did, blood would go everywhere. He wasn't concerned, so I did. Under different circumstances, I would have laughed my head off as he just ended up getting covered in my blood. But my sense of humour had temporarily left me at this point. Fast forward to me being in the back of the ambulance and me telling the paramedics I wanted to go to my spinal injuries unit in Sheffield. They were telling me that there wasn't time. I'd lost too much blood and needed to go to the nearest hospital, which was still 25 minutes away, on blue lights. What had transpired was the cut to my sphincter had opened up, and an artery was leaking blood at a heavy rate. 
The paramedic had this ingenious idea of partially inserting a permanent catheter and inflating the retaining balloon to put pressure on the cut. This worked and to an extent it slowed the blood flow down and the pressure would have to still be released though every 15 minutes until I got to hospital. In the meantime, I'd lost around six pints of blood and I was freezing cold and drifting in and out of consciousness. The paramedic supervising me kept talking to me to keep me awake. But nothing he said interested me. I just wanted to go to sleep. He tried talking to me about cars, bikes, Buxton, the town where I live, TV programs, everything. But I still couldn't engage with him. And then he asked me about the music I was listening to. Bingo. He'd hit the rich seam of my passion and my consciousness returned. For the rest of that journey, I talked and listened to this guy as we exchanged views on the state of the current music scene back in 1987, particularly Stock Aitken and Waterman's dominance and ruination of the 80s music charts, as I felt about it then, to the Beatles versus Stones debate, punk, two-tone, the emergence of rap music. I was engaged when we arrived to the hospital and I wanted to carry on the conversation with my newfound musical buddy. I'd made it in one piece and I was still alive, although at the time I could not appreciate quite how close I'd come to dying. My passion for music had kept me alive. Oh, and the intervention of the paramedics, of course. I owe my life to those guys and the professionalism and the calm way they pursued their vocation to keep me alive. Music has always been that important to me and my mental state benefited and still does as a result and so it would seem my physical well-being too. I've often tried to come up with a list of my favourite tracks of all time and given up because in my world it's impossible to decide because it changes with my mood. For me music is mood and I use it both to complement and manage my mindset allowing me to survive in times of hardship and thrive in times of abundance commiserating times of setbacks and celebrating times of success. Music can still annoy me and it can educate me. It can inspire me and motivate me. I cannot envisage a day without music and my journey now as it's been in the past has had a soundtrack to it and times of challenge and I still use music as an accompaniment to whatever goal I'm reaching for. So I'm going to conclude this episode and then I'm going to go and put some music on. I don't know what it will be. I'm struggling with that. I'm feeling energised and positive as a result of the cathartic process of writing and recording this episode. So oh, I don't know. Thanks for being here, guys. And I feel as though this episode has been a little bit self-indulgent. So if you've taken the time to listen to the end, I really appreciate it. But I hope that you've got something from it and you can recognise how perhaps music has helped you form a soundtrack to your life to this point, been there for you when you needed it and served you when you were on a high or when you'd achieved something. And if you have, absolutely great. And I hope that you can continue to be mindful of how music can help you going forward. Because life with a soundtrack is so much better, and especially at times of stress. So until next time, keep in action, because whatever thoughts and plans you've got, they won't climb any ladders. Take care. Thanks for listening to my podcast, guys. I really appreciate your company, and I hope you got something from this episode that can help you with your life. If you did, then click subscribe, because I've got so much more to share with you, and I don't want you to miss a thing. Also... Why not bring your friends on the journey and share this podcast with them? You can post feedback in the comments section. I'd love to hear what you've got to say. Or you can get in touch with me direct by visiting my website at designforlifecoaching.com. Especially if you're struggling at the moment and you need a lift. In the meantime, stay safe guys and I look forward to catching up with you soon.